Will you pray with me as we get started here? God, you are good, and we trust that your word is effective. I thank you for these stories of faith, God, but also for, for stories where we can learn something, where we can see example, where you can help us to express joy and love and peace in more profound ways in the everyday things of life. This time is given over to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning to those of you here in the room and online. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle, lead pastor here at Generations. And one of the things that we are talking a lot about and has been the, really the, the story of Generations is helping people get to know uh, each other's story. We want you to step into the big, beautiful story that is what God is doing here in Vancouver, uh, but also understand who God is and what he meet, has for your life and how that story intersects your story and your personal journey. It's been actually really exciting because some of you, like when I say that, usually at the start of my teaching, have actually like started to believe me and like engage each other in your stories and like share your stories. And it's amazing what happens just, just some of the, the connections that have come because of that. And, and the goal is not just to get to know Kyle and Ruth and, and our story and, and why we moved here to see Generation Start, but really to help each other get to know the stories collectively, because especially this time of year, I, let, me, let me say it this way, some of you have family here who are local. You, you have family that you have holiday traditions with, and you know that's your time and, and your place, and you've got those things sorted out. For some of you, the only family you have here in this area are those people who sit around this room or watch online, but you know relationally because you know their story and they know yours. And so I want to remind us today from the outset that while this season can also be tough, that there's also opportunity for joy. But that also, that we have people here who are a part of generations, and this is their family. And so that vision that we say at the start, the outset, to be God's family, Amen. like, they mean that. So when we talk about Christmas Eve, when we talk about sharing stories, I know some of you really do take that to heart, because you go, like, this is my family. Like, if the only family tradition that I have that I practice now is getting together with my religious, with, with my church family, who's not just church family, maybe in like, a traditional sense, but it's actually people who've become family. It's the people you check in up on. It's the people you reach out to. And so my encouragement to you, as you think about this season, and maybe you've got some good, healthy family traditions, but to not forget to look around the room and say, if these people are my family, who do I need to include? Who do I need to invite? And maybe together as we celebrate Christmas Eve, as it's not just like an outreach thing where, well, it is an outreach thing, but it's one of those things where we want people to know that they're not alone, that, that, that maybe they are like some of you who have no family here and can experience the goodness and the best of God's family. 
And so maybe in starting a new Christmas tradition, maybe that starts with something cookie decorating and Christmas Eve, but that moment that turns into a truly forever family, a local expression here, so that they can be known that they are not alone and that they are loved. And so may we do that well as we consider this passage today, that God has been in the business of bringing people together, of of using families to extend his family. Have you ever noticed that often the, the, the best movies develop the backstory of the supporting characters well? And that they can become just as important as like the main characters because you, you see the story unfold, but you're like, I really like that character who is like in the like 10 minutes into the movie where you got a glimpse of their story arc and then they do a flashback later and you get to know them a little bit more and you're like, man, they were so vital to the, helping the main characters accomplish their goal or to the resolution of a movie or story. In Luke's retelling of the birth of Jesus, he includes this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're almost like supporting characters to the main story and the rival of Jesus. But they're vitally important in terms of preparation so that people can receive the promised Messiah. It says in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife of the daughters of Aaron named so, so they're giving you some backstory. They're giving you some family history of this couple. That they come from a promised line. And it says they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and were both advanced in years. And Zechariah was chosen to go into the temple and offer incense. And there he meets an angel and gives him some news. This angel says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you should call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he's going to be filled with the power and the spirit of Elijah. And this news was long coming. Last verses of the pages of the Old Testament talk about the spirit of Elijah coming and preparing the way for the Messiah. And what's amazing is there in the temple, in a sacred space, an angel shows up, gives him this news, And he couldn't believe the news. And he said as much. How should I know? First of all, you're there in the temple. You're doing something really holy. And then he's like, how can I be so sure? And so Gabriel, probably with a little indignation, responded, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And you idiot, you didn't receive it. Sorry, that was that was a Kyle thing. Um, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which must be fulfilled in their time. It's amazing. Is eventually Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, and at the child's 
like naming celebration at his circumcision, the neighbors started to call the child Zechariah after his father, but in obedience to God, Zechariah wrote on a tablet and said, no, his name is John. And then his tongue was loosed and was able to communicate, and he just, he just explodes in this glorious, glorious poem. Now, the dude's been unable to talk for at least 10 months. I kind of wonder, like, what might Zechariah and Elizabeth have talked about after all those friends left the naming ceremony where Zechariah had miraculously regained his speech? I mean, think about that. Can't talk, can't really probably hear or communicate very well, is used to writing down things, and now all of a sudden the birth of the child, eight days later, can speak again. That must have been a fun conversation. He's had at least 10 months of silence, Zechariah had, to brood, to ponder, and pray, probably to meditate on the word, to think, to consider. And I think ultimately his silence may have been a divine rebuke for his unbelief. But God always turns his rebukes into rewards to those who keep the faith. See, correction is rarely fun, especially when it's connected to something we are supposed to be good at. Zechariah was a priest. He was interceding, burning the incense on behalf of the people of God to God. This was like he had devoted his whole life to this moment. And he choked. He was someone who followed the Jewish laws. He was righteous. It affected his whole life, his patterns, his upbringing, his career. And here in this moment, I think we need to be reminded is that those of you who suffer right now from the scars of past sins, if you keep faith now, God will turn the marks of sin into memorials of grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. For 10 months is a long time to ponder, to think, to reflect. I'm sure Zechariah had a level of groaning under God's rebuke what gradually discovering the reward. At first, I'm sure he's like, why didn't I believe God? Why did I have to be so skeptical? What a fool I was. Why me? For he probably knew the story of Abraham and Sarah, where they were advanced in years and then yet conceived the promised lineage of the Messiah. And here he goes. He's in the temple doing his job, and he choked. The biggest moment of his life, and now cannot speak. See, for Zechariah professed to believe something, yet when a supernatural moment occurred, his heart didn't follow when he asked the angel, but how will I know? But I'm sure the gradual evolution came in the midst of the silence of those months. You know, it's interesting because the word here in, in verse 62 talks about how Zechariah's demeanor, and it's like he's probably definitely 
not just able not to speak, but he's probably deaf as well because both people around him and him had to communicate by writing stuff down. So not only can he not proclaim, he cannot hear. So I'm sure gradually in the silence of these months, these long months, when he could not converse with his wife or his friends, Zechariah began to see what was happening. And it began to sink into his head and to his heart that these were stupendous, unrepeatable, incredibly significant days. For Zechariah, his silence was forced. God's judgment on Zechariah slowed him down. And I would be remiss in the midst of this series as we look at the narratives around Jesus' birth. If we don't take our cue sometimes from the school of hard knocks from someone else's story. See, if we don't seek out silence, we will probably not feel the stupendous significance of God's work in history and on our lives. To slow down and listen. As I've talked to so many of you, you say, I, I ask, how, how, how's life going? What's good? And usually you give me one or two responses, good or busy. <laughs> I would encourage you to, as you think of this moment, to, to be in some ways countercultural. To not feel the rush or the pressure to just simply respond with those trite statements. Have you slowed down enough to say, yes, my life may be full, but it's actually the good kind of full? Or maybe it's a level of busy, and I've not actually, I've let someone else kind of exercise a level of control, or I'm just, I'm just saying busy because that's where I feel like saying, and it kind of moves along with the conversation. And we've not slowed down enough to create and make some room for God to speak and be reminded of the reason for this season. And so we respond with these trite phrases kind of to move the conversation along. But what if we responded with something different? What if the phrases we responded to those questions weren't simply good or busy, but we were aware enough to take stock of our own soul and how we actually were and created a moment and maybe gave some silence in the conversation to actually respond with a sincere and thoughtful response. How might that change the moments in the midst of this season? For someone to respond, man, I, I'm grieving, or I'm tired, or I'm struggling with deep things, that may make us slow down and consider. And it gives us a great opportunity, church, for us to be truly present with others, to not just rush by to the, to the next event or activity, but to consider Lord, this person, or maybe I'm going to give a response to that question that opens a door for your story to come to an impact in this conversation. See, it would be a rare thing to be gripped and moved 
in a deeply, deeply in a noisy room. There's a close correlation between stillness and a sense of the stupendous to quiet our souls and lives and maybe even quiet our minds in the midst of conversations to actually listen and speak. I think the, the most astonishing things about reality is we probably will be missed if we simply con- continue to move with the status quo. For many of us, we're used to TV or a tablet be a constant background drone to not allow things to be quiet. Kids get a little out of hand, and so we're just like, oh, we we can't have the silence. And I know all of us have a different relationship with silence. Some of us crave it because of all the activity, and you're like, can I just get a moment of peace and quiet? But then when we get that, we're not quite sure what to do with it. Or some of us, maybe we sit at home and there's a level of quietness and emptiness, so we distract ourselves because we're not quite sure where our thoughts would go, and in doing so, we miss some moments. We miss opportunities for joy and peace. And the vision of generations is always to expand God's family for generations to come. In church, we cannot pass down to the next generation what we don't have. And my hope is that we have a joy that transcends the moment, that we can slow down and recognize that it's the presence of Jesus that is the greatest present of all. In order for this to be done, we actually are going to have to rely on other people, or it may be forced upon you. The word says, be still and know that I am God. What it, would it mean for your life if for nine months you could not hear or say anything? It's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> I've tried to imagine what it might mean for ministry, for home life. No, limited preaching, no counseling, new work. But probably a lot more seeing. Lots more looking into the eyes of my wife and kids seeing what interests them, making observations about their patterns of life. When was the last time, instead of moving through a conversation and for, through a gathering in a hurried way that you slowed down and really looked at someone, you made some observations, not in a level of judgment, but to try to observe their body posture, the bags under their eyes, maybe the limp from an old injury. When was the last time you looked into a loved one's eyes to consider how their soul, how their heart was doing? We can't hurry through those moments. And usually we can't rush them. I'm sure over nine months of, or almost ten months of silence of not being able to hear and speak. I'm sure there, for my life, there'll be a lot more reading as well, probably some lot writing, maybe some more prayer and meditation. At least that's what I would hope, but all in absolute silence. I hope that I would turn times of silence to as much good as Zechariah did. 
Because when Zechariah came out, he came out filled with the Holy Spirit and singing. And what has become known as the Benedictus, a song filled with insight, with a sense of the stupendous significance of what was about to happen at the birth of Jesus. Just read some of these words. It says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies, from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers, remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence on all of our days. And child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness, the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah shouted with praise. So while we may ponder now how we may need to seek some silence for ourselves, to maybe ask a friend or a loved one, hey, can you take the kids or... Maybe we sit in silence and we fear our own thoughts, but we ask for someone to help us process that. Maybe we learn from what the Holy Spirit taught Zechariah. And whatever form of silence or fear of silence may be there, may we come out of it and respond with praise. May we recognize that sometimes the rebukes of life on the other side of them come a reward to recognize who God is and what he has done and how he has at work. It's interesting, though, for Zechariah's silence, sin in this moment, this clear moment of opportunity, didn't remain with him alone. His silence, the sin, was also shared. There was a communal effect. For Zechariah's failure to believe the angel, to believe God in that moment, likely had an effect on his wife. One day he can speak, work, and fulfill the roles as husband. The next, he cannot speak. The whole world has been turned upside down. Elizabeth was likely also confused and frustrated. And within this narrative, after John is conceived, Mary visits. And her visit serves as confirmation that Mary's presence confirmed the reward that would come. Because there, as Mary visits, John leaps for joy in Elizabeth's belly. Elizabeth's response of joy then serves as an encouragement to Mary. And credit is given to the Lord. See, even in the presence of of sin and difficulty creates opportunity for the people of God to respond to the word of God, to the joy and the promises of the Lord and be an encouragement in the midst of confusion and likely difficulty. For while Elizabeth is old and Mary is young, they're together. 
between multiple generations, shared a word of encouragement and reflect on the promise of God. And so Zechariah's rebuke also probably helped him take God at his word moving forward. See, the take God at his word was then the environment that John the Baptist grew up in. Zechariah's failure to believe God in that moment turned into praise and response. And there, then that young child grew up with parents who had gone through a difficult season, a silent one, but now could learn to take God at his word in even more profound ways than they already had before. For John's call to the people would then be one of repentance. And it's interesting because the angel tells Zechariah that that John's message would be one of great joy, that people would get excited about it. Yet, John's message is one of repentance. Essentially saying, you are living life your own way, under your own power, under your own guidance. Turn from that and trust in the Lord. And it's amazing because this kind of confronts us. It's one of rebuke if we hear that seriously for ourselves. That, that when we trust in our own power and own strength and own might, that we are going on our own way and it is a wrong way. And that we should turn to that and turn back to the Lord and trust and follow Him. But yet, it's amazing because this feels like an affront, an offense, but it was going to be one of joy. And that's almost perplexing. Someone telling me that I did something wrong or do something wrong doesn't quite sound so joyful. But the joy comes because there's a God who loves and cares to see us as we are and not leave us as we are and intervenes on our behalf and sends people as messengers to remind us that we are loved and not alone. And that into this, the Messiah is sent. What's amazing is, as Zechariah responds, most of the song is not of how glad he is that John is here. He is glad. There's only two small verses. But most of that passage is that the Messiah is coming. Not taken up with his own song or his own son, but he was taken up with the salvation that the Messiah would bring for what that meant for him and the people of God. For John would go before the Lord to prepare his way by calling people to repentance, but in reality, what the coming of Jesus would truly mean. See, Zechariah says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. That word redeemed, I always think of the old iTunes like gift cards. If you went on to like uh, purchase a song online, if you ever talk about a gift card, it's like you redeem it. There is value in his inherently there and then you exchange it for something. What's amazing is we have value and we have worth and by Jesus coming, It restores and redeems us. It gives us our value back. God sees you as you are and is willing to enter in to your mess or your even own perceived righteousness 
and maybe forces some silence or provides some silence, hits you over with those proverbial two-by-fours <laughs> to get your attention to wake up to say, quit living life your way by your own strength and power and come and follow. Have forgiveness for your sins and do not let fear and guilt and shame roll over you because that means that what those do is they say that you have lesser value than you do but the Lord has visited and redeems his people at least 10 months earlier Zechariah could not believe his wife would have a child and so now filled with the Holy Spirit he is so confident of God's redeeming work in the coming Messiah, that in this shout of praise, he puts it in the past tense. For the mind of faith, a promise act of God, is as good as done. Zechariah has learned to take God at his word, and he has a remarkable assurance. Never again, may he, he might ask, how will I come to know? But he can say he knows. For God has visited and redeemed, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. The coming of Jesus the Messiah is a visitation of God to our world. The God of Israel has visited and redeemed. For centuries, Jewish people had languished under the conviction that God had withdrawn, that the spirit of prophecy had ceased, that Israel had fallen into the hands of Rome. And so do we at times wonder, where are you, God? Speak a new word. You feel absent or far away. It feels as if evil has overcome. Yeah. And we await yeah. a fresh visitation from God. Luke tells us in two in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, that the devout Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel, and that in Luke 2, 38, the prayer of Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. These were days of great expectation. And church, have we forgot to live with great expectation? Amen. That God is faithful and true. Amen. That he is still at work in the world. Amen. That he still redeems hearts and restores lives that he does not leave us as we are, but moves towards us. May we live with great expectation. And for Zechariah, the long-awaited visitation of God was about to happen. And he was indeed about to come in the way that no one expected. If someone would have given me a pair of slippers or house shoes, as I'm sure some people call them, uh, for Christmas last year, I would have probably felt very little appreciation. I've never been a slipper or house shoe wear person, but recently we tore up all the carpet in our house, and because of our dog, and so now when you walk around our house, the, 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 again, really close to the ground, it's a little bit colder, and my feet aren't quite acclimated to it. So Ruth got some for the whole family, and for that I am greatly appreciative. My feet are a little bit warmer now. But a year ago, I would not have thought much of that type of gift. Now, if you offer me a quick ride um, after service to the emergency room at Legacy over here, I'll think you're pretty strange, 
unless I see a gash in my arm and feel, or feel a severe pain in my abdomen, then I would love for you to extend that offer. If a police car screeches to a stop beside me on my way home from church, maybe some night if I'm here late, and a man hollers at me to get in, I'll think he has the wrong guy, unless maybe there's some armed individual lurking ahead around the corner. And so it is in all of life. We often do not appreciate gifts that meet no needs or satisfy no desires. We do not value or love an offer for help unless we know we are sick or endangered by some enemy. Vast numbers of people look upon Jesus and the Christmas story of his coming as useless house slippers, as a crazy trip to an emergency room, or a bothersome pickup by the police because they don't know that the restlessness in their souls is from a terminal illness called unforgiven sin. And they don't believe in a fearful enemy called Satan. Moreover, they don't know how much God truly loves them. For them, the horn of salvation is a useless toy. And when the joy of the Lord, when the Lord intervenes, we can truly experience joy. Joy is an attitude of God's people that we adopt because of God's promises, not because of our circumstances. Joy is not some trite call to turn that frown upside down. It's a supreme confidence. It's a disposition, an attitude of the heart that says, I am so glad that no matter my circumstance, God saw me, he sees me, he loves me, and has sent people he has sent himself to intervene in my life. And I can't help but be glad. But blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And you, child, to be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. If you have knowledge of the opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to know that you are loved and that your story matters, that you don't have to be alone, that you are wanted and loved, that should be cause for rejoicing. See, these things make Christmas good news of great joy to all who believe. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, that Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. Fear, guilt, and shame. The three great spoilers of life have been taken away because Satan has been disarmed Amen. and sin has been forgiven. Amen. Hebrews 2, 14-15 says, Christ took on human nature that through death he might destroy him has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those things through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Some of us are afraid of the silence because we might have to consider our own sin and what might need forgiven. Some of us may crave silence 
because we've sought salvation and something other than the one true living Jesus. As the band comes forward and we sing one last song, I don't want us to rush past this season. We've got some activity around here at Generations Church. We've already served this morning. We've been purposeful. But when we not just simply hurry to and fro to accomplish things for God and miss that Jesus was sent for us? See, and through that same death, the death on the cross, he paid the debt for our sin so that if we turn and follow him in faith, if we repent, if we recognize we don't have to do life on our own and are baptized into him, we can be freed from all of our guilt. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people by raising up a horn of salvation for us. May we shout that. May we believe that. And whenever we feel tempted to ask, but how will I know? May we take solace in the story and the promises that Jesus came and that he is coming back. May you look to the stories of others who live out that salvation well, not to see them as a savior, but to see how they trust in a mighty and powerful savior and how their lives are changed. And know that that same truth, that same transformation is available to you. May you believe that and live that. And so let's sing, let's shout for joy. May our souls wake up and respond to the God who loves, to the God who saves.